If you have a Bible, you can open to Acts chapter 20. And if not, feel free to read along in your bulletin. It's printed there, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. This is the famous speech of Paul to the, uh, to the elders in Ephesus, who he spent three years with. It's, it's unique in the book of Acts. You know, Acts has all kinds of speeches in it, but this is the only speech that's to believers. All the other speeches are either to uh, unbelievers in Jerusalem and, and people who are considering believing or, or then toward the end of the book, there are all kinds of speeches, especially Paul to uh, officials as he's standing on trial. But this one's the only one that's addressed to Christians. And of course, it ends with him and the elders in tears as he's departing. And so that's, that's the thing that uh, drew me to this as I considered what it would look like to to leave San Diego. We're, we're leaving, by the way, on Tuesday. I think most, if not all of you know that. And so this will be probably our, our last time in, uh, in San Diego here for, for a little while. I, I will be back to, uh, to gather some of our things in a bit. After this plane goes, we'll leave. Paul is busy now. He's traveling various places, but he's on his way back to Jerusalem. And rather than go to the city of Ephesus, where he spent three years and knows so many people, he he calls the elders to come to meet him at another city nearby, Miletus. And it says now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you, and the whole time, from the first day that I set foot, set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to you 
I commend you to God and to the world, word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts now be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. First, I need to just say that my nose runs when I'm cold. That's all that is. Charles Wesley was a famous hymn writer. His brother, John Wesley, they founded hundreds of churches in the plains riding on horseback from place to place as the frontier was being settled. Wesley was a famous hymn writer as well, and so he would famously write his hymns as he was riding from place to place, and when he'd arrive, his guests or his hosts would welcome him, and he would almost rudely say, a paper and a pen, so he could write down the words that God had given him as he was riding from place to place. Three years of ministry on the road Jesus spent with his disciples, not having a place to call his home. Perhaps one place in the town of Capernaum was a, a home base for him. I wouldn't say Jesus was quite homeless, but in one sense he was a vagabond. I can identify with Wesley and Jesus' ministry to some small degree. Just for the past two weeks we have been place to place as we had to move out of our home because landlords were selling, but we still can't move to Indianapolis yet because there's one more step I have to go through. The Presbytery has to approve my transfer by an exam this week and then a second exam on May 14th. This place is not our home, as the Apostle Paul is well experienced in his travels. For three years, he called the city of Ephesus home. It was probably the most settled he'd experience since he had been called to gospel ministry when Jesus appeared to him miraculously as he was traveling on the way to Damascus to further persecute those who had believed in the name of Jesus. We are aliens in a foreign land, pilgrims on a journey to the celestial city as the writer John Bunyan penned in his famous the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. If you have never read that, I highly commend it to you. And it has more meaning, especially as we move from place to place, feeling unsettled. We need to be challenged from time to time as Christians, for we settle into a certain comfort oftentimes. Many of us have experienced periods of unsettledness, suffering, and various other things that know what it is to trust in God all the more in recent times, but many of us need to be reminded that this is not our home. 
We've been called to be ambassadors for God's kingdom, a kingdom that we are not in yet. And may we all be found faithful as the Apostle Paul sought to be faithful as ambassadors for that kingdom, proclaiming that gospel, not shying away, shrinking back, he says two or three times, referring to his ministry that he continued to press into even though it was difficult, even though he now knew that he was going to a place that the Holy Spirit himself had testified to him that there would be affliction maybe even arrest and possibly even death. And still he presses on. Why? Because he felt the weight. The weight not of his persecution, but the weight of the glory that God speaks of to his people. The glory that we can expect that we are headed toward, that we need to set our hearts on. And if if we go away as a church with one thing, it would be my prayer that it would be that we have that weight of glory in our hearts that far surpasses any weight that may bind us and hinder us, whether it be a weight of certain suffering or persecution or a weight of certain sins that continue to attack us in this life, that we would experience the power of the grace of God. Two times Paul speaks specifically of the grace of God, the gospel of grace, he says. It's a gospel that doesn't call us into good behavior. It's a gospel that doesn't require that we have to have had a good week in order to come to worship on Sunday or even to proclaim to somebody else the reason that we have faith in this gospel. It frees us from that tyranny, a tyranny that comes from the devil, and it brings us to a place that we can say that we are fully loved by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, not for anything that we have done, but for what Jesus has done on our behalf. Last week, we looked at this same passage, and my focus was on the call of each of you as children of God, those who have believed in God, to seek after positions of leadership, not for your own glory, but not shying away from the things God has called us into, gifting us each The call to be elders in the church for those men that God has called. The call to be ministry leaders in the church or simply servant leaders to one another. Not shying away from these responsibilities. That is a call for all of us to step into ministry roles and to identify our gifts. We talked about the importance of character in that that work that God calls, and and if you look at the passages that describe the role of the elder, they describe far more the character of the life of an elder, of the leaders of the church, than what they're called to actually do. Because we're called to a, 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 a relationship, first with God, and a relationship with others that's not to be characterized as the wolves that come into the, the congregation seeking selfish gain, whether it's Preachers and teachers who want to gain material wealth and possessions or glory themselves. Or whether it's others who come in with a desire to maybe make business connections or other types of connections in the community. Paul maybe doesn't go back to Ephesus because just a few weeks earlier there was a riot in Ephesus that was started by makers, silversmiths who made statuettes of the Greek god Artemis 
that had a giant statue and temple in the city of Ephesus. And they raised up the riot because so many people were becoming Christians that people weren't buying their statues. And the other people of the city were concerned that if too many people became Christians, the city economy would suffer. The calling for leaders in Jesus' church is to be leaders of character, whose lives are characterized by a selfless giving of themselves. Paul describes his own life, that he took up the practice of making tents for a living so that he wouldn't put a burden, a financial burden, on those who were weak in faith and still considering the faith. It's not to say pastors aren't deserving of their wages and don't, shouldn't receive a full wage. And there are other parts of Scripture that talk about not muzzling the ox. But the charge we looked at last week was this charge toward character, servant leadership. To step into those roles of the church and to respond to those people. For the church is characterized by those who are like sheep and need shepherds, and shepherds have authority of the sheep over the sheep. Oftentimes in the church, people get upset because they don't have a voice enough, but God calls these leaders who have this character to take a, a, a noticeable position of authority. The shepherds don't ask the sheep what they think. The shepherds exercise an, uh, an element of authority. And Jesus reminds us that each of us, like sheep, have turned away. We run away. And even us as shepherds, we as shepherds need to be reminded that in many ways we are still like sheep and dependent on Jesus' shepherding. That was last week in that call. This week I want to look at the, the relationship that Paul has with the Ephesus church. Multiple times this passage, three if I count correctly, tears are mentioned. A lot of times when we think about the apostles, we think about fairly emotionless people who are called to preach and proclaim truth and face great persecution. But Paul speaks about being in tears for the people that he's been in relationship with and the tears of the people who have known him and his relationship. This is significant. Oftentimes in relationships in the church, among elders especially, pastors and elders have strained relationships and oftentimes, trust is lacking, but that should not be the case. And the opportunity for it, the call to it, is put on display. The example is set in the church of Ephesus where, where they shed tears with one another. But the relationship was grounded in something that is greater than just a caring for one another, or even a knowing one another. The relationship was grounded in the truth of the gospel that Paul, over and over again, if you notice throughout this passage, he speaks about admonishing them, not shrinking away from declaring to them the gospel of grace, pressing into their lives, going from house to house, and also gathering the people together in public so that he could teach them the truth of God. And so here are the three rough points that we'll look at today, fairly briefly each, that lead up to the tears. of The first one is the truth of God that he proclaims and the role of truth in the church and in our lives today and how central and important that is for us as Christ followers. But that truth 
does not simply end in the bad news of telling us what's wrong. It moves into the significant truth of grace. The grace, the gospel of grace, two times explicitly grace is mentioned here and multiple times the grace of the gospel is spoken of as the foundation for how we can interact with God and interact with one another. And then that'll conclude us to bring us to the point that Paul's tears are shed and the tears of the elders are shed that demonstrate and represent the depth of relationship that they shared with one another. Verse 20 says, Paul does not shrink from declaring to them what is profitable. And then in 27, doesn't shrink from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. Now that language of being profitable is also interesting because throughout this whole passage, there's all kinds of talk about financial transactions and financial worth. And he says, verse 24, I don't account my life of any value nor precious to myself. And in verse 32, he speaks of the inheritance that we have from God in Christ. You see, money is such a significant factor in all of our lives. We get anxious about various things, or some of us hold on to the money that we have, fearful of what may come another day. But over and over again, Jesus calls us to a spirit of generosity, of practicing giving. And Paul refers to this at the end. He says it's blessed, more blessed to give than to receive, because what we do with our money is a visible, tangible example of how what we do with our hearts, the condition of our hearts. And the more we're fearful, the more we're afraid to invest in the kingdom of God, to give to others, to give to those who are needy, to invest in God's work in various forms, the more revealing it is of how we trust God and what we fear most. Do we fear God or do we fear the circumstances? Do we trust God? Do we believe that God is sovereign over all of these things and he's entrusted the things that we have to us for the use of his kingdom? Paul trusted that. Giving of his whole life, sailing from place to place, proclaiming the gospel, trusting in it for all of his life. And he was, he was committed to speaking the truth, whether it be the grace of God that is for the salvation of all of us, or the judgment of God, the good news accompanied by the bad news. Many people today want to say truth is relative. Is there definite truth, absolute truth? And how can we know it? Of course, the statement that all truth is relative is an absolute statement in and of itself, and it doesn't take much logical thinking to realize that there's a great uh, fallacy in that, and we don't need to belabor that point. But a bigger question is, how do you discern truth, and what are you looking to, to to understand truth? And for most of us, we take a fairly pragmatic approach to truth. We're happy to take this bit of truth that seems to work for us, but also glean a little bit of this bit of what seems to be truth, because that seems to be working for us at the time. Truth is truth eternally. Absolutely. It doesn't come and go. Sometimes we have to search after it, pursue it, 
But truth is unchanging. Truth is oftentimes difficult to discern. It's tough to ascertain. If you've ever helped two people in a significant disagreement, you know that when you hear the two stories, when you hear the one story, Let me say that again. When you hear the first story, you think you know the truth. This is absolutely what happened. When you hear the other side, you realize somebody isn't telling the truth or they're not the whole truth. It's, it's clear that truth is difficult to discern. And in one sense, when you come to the truth of the gospel, we need to recognize, take a humble posture to God and his word that says, this is going to take a long time to discern what the full truth is. We're going to hear conflicting stories. And the answer isn't just what works. The answer is what the whole counsel of God, all of the scripture, point to. Oftentimes we're tempted to take the easy approach. We want the quick answer. We want to find out the solution. But what God calls us to in his word is not simply truths drop down from the sky but it's enduring relationship. The unfolding of more and more understanding of another person and how they act. And a commitment to pursuing that relationship with love. Oftentimes we come to truth and think what is agreeable, what we already believe must be consistent with what what is true. We need to come to truth or search from truth with an understanding that when we seek out truth, not all of that is going to reside internally inside of us. We're going to be challenged to things that we don't like. We're going to hear things, difficult things that we need to hear The things that Paul speaks about not shrinking away from us. He uses the word admonishing them. Admonishing is a word that we don't use much, but it means simply to offer correction. When we come to truth or when we seek truth, we need to be open to receiving correction. How do you receive correction when it comes? You stiffen up your spine or do you consider this may be true, it may not be true. Truth is one of the most important things we can pursue in this life. Are you in a place where you're wondering, is the Bible true? Is what I'm saying here this morning true? The people of Berea were famous for hearing a preacher, and they were commended for hearing the preacher and then go seeking, going to seek out the Scriptures at that time, the Old Testament scriptures to see if it was true, to see if what, what the preachers were preaching them, Paul and others, was consistent with what was in the Old Testament. The, the Apostle Paul and all the book of Acts is about the question, the central question, is Jesus Christ the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament? 
earlier when we were talking about baptism, we were talking about the Ethiopian official. And he was looking at the, the book of Isaiah and wondering if Jesus Christ was this suffering servant who was spoken of hundreds of years before who had come to suffer on behalf of the people and to bring them salvation. When you hear a preacher speak, and as you go to your various churches, go to the Scriptures and test what the person has to say. Seek out truth. God promises us when we seek out the truth, we will find it. And He gives it to us in His Word. Truth brings us bad news oftentimes. News that says we're not living up to the standards we even set for ourselves, much less the standards that God has set for us. The bad news of the gospel says you are sinners in need of grace, sinners deserving God's judgment of eternal separation from God. But the good news of the gospel is the gospel of grace. Paul repeats multiple times, verse 24 and then verse 32, the gospel of grace, he says, and then the word of his grace. And the truth of the gospel is found not only in the bad news of our conditions, but in the good news that God brings a grace that we are absolutely incapable of working ourselves. The centrality of the story of Christianity is not that it's geocentric or ethnocentric. The centrality of the story of Christianity The centrality of Christianity, the story of Christianity, is not that it's geocentric or ethnocentric, nor is Christianity truthfully, chiefly about these truth claims. The centrality of the story of Christianity is that the God who made everything, all of humanity, has entered into that very creation that he made, taking the form of of a human being so that he can show grace to a people who were far off, who were alienated, who were hostile to- toward God. And that truth goes out, and that story of the gospel goes out, not just to one particular place. It starts in Jerusalem, but the beginning of Acts points out that the, the start of Jerusalem It's just the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham, that through Abraham and Sarah and through their offspring, salvation would come to all the nations of the earth. And so almost immediately, you see the gospel expanding to people of other tongues and tribes, and then going out to these various places around the world, to the continent of Asia, in Ephesus, and other places. Tim Keller, in a sermon on this passage that was very helpful for me, points out that Christianity is unlike any other world religion. If you look at all of the other world religions, without exception, you'll find that roughly 80% or more of the adherents of every other religion reside in one or maybe two continents, whether it's Islam or uh, Buddhism or, or uh, Hinduism or, or other things. All 80% of the adherents of it reside within a, a certain continent. But when you look at Christianity, 
Christianity, roughly 20% of Christian, the Christian population is in Africa, and roughly 20% is in uh, South America, and roughly 20% is in North America, and roughly 20% is in Europe, and those numbers are very... But Christianity is the only religion that is truly not ethnocentric or geocentric. Christianity is not simply about the truth claims. All of these other world religions are basically one person proclaiming some great wisdom, ways to live life, things that are pragmatic, that work out. But Christianity unfolds over centuries and even millennia in God interacting with a people that he had called to be his own, called to be his children. And throughout that whole history, that group of people is called to be not just hoarders of God's love or recipients of God's love, but conduits of that love and that gospel that go out to the world around them. Now, some of them are more faithful than others, and some of the ministry to others around is more effective than others, and the coming of the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends is significant. Man, that wind is just knocking the rain out of there, I know. But the story of the gospel that comes to communicate to us that we are truly loved by God and that Christianity is not simply a way that life can go better or a way that we can make more money or the way that we can experience happiness in greater ways, but that Christianity is about the deepest needs of us as human beings. And speaks the truth to us when we need to hear it but may not want to hear it. And then applies to us a grace that goes deeper than any of us could possibly imagine. Is a gospel that will defend us against all kinds of attacks. From outside, the wolves that come from outside and from within. And the people of Ephesus saw this characterized in Paul's life, who was willing to lay down his life for them and shepherd them, and the elders who had been called to continue on that work and be on guard against the lies that would come into their place. And that brings us to a place of the friendship that Paul was able to enter into with the people of Ephesus. A friendship that resulted in tears and knowing of one another and knowing the difficulties and the struggles of knowing the deep love of God and what that friendship meant to one another. They saw Paul and they knew that this was probably going to be the last time they ever laid eyes on him in person until they saw him in glory. Now, I don't want to compare my situation and our situation too closely to any of this if for a number of reasons. I just want to look at what Paul, his friendship looked like with those people and why the friendship went so deep. Friendships go deep for two reasons. One is that we know one another. We're known by the other. And the other reason is that we're loved by the other. Now these two things oftentimes seem like they are diametrically opposed. Because when we're truly loved or known, when we're truly known, 
Most of us are afraid that we will not be truly loved. Most of us hold back some things from most people because we're afraid if somebody really knew the depth of our, our, our selfishness, of our greed, of our, our thought life, that, that other people would be incapable of loving us. You see, on the other hand, many of us try to be truly loved by not being known or try to love other people when we don't fully know them. And so true friendship is constantly running up against a a limited knowledge of another or a limited ability to truly love another. All of us know what this is like to experience from others. All of us are limited in how much we can truly love one another. And all of us take that limited ability to love one another or to be loved by others and we attribute it to God. We attribute it to God and assume that God is the same way, that if we really were fully known by God, there's no way that he could truly love us. And that's part of the reason that we confess our sins every week is to be reminded every week, I say in one way or another, that that is a lie that the, that, that, that the Satan, the accuser, the evil one wants to promote among Christ's followers. It's a lie that we're prone to anyway, but that God fully knows every one of our thoughts and deeds. And if we are in Christ, united with Christ, not because of anything that we've said, but because Christ has come and entered into our lives, that God fully knows everything about you and he fully loves you. And this relationship that we have with God frees us to enter into all kinds of new depths with relationships with one another. C.S. Lewis talks about the limits that we have on friendship. And he he makes an interesting observation that most of us experience uh, some type of difficulty in friendships. And some people really want to have deep friendships, but they're, they're constantly incapable of it. And you hear them speaking all the time that they want deeper friendships and better friendships. And the irony he points out is those people are are almost never going to find true friends. And he points out that that the reason for this, the reason for this is, is found internally. And it's really not tough to to figure out. Now in the four loves, Lewis is talking about how in the Greek language, there are four different words for love and and these things, or at least four different words, four different concepts, and that our English word love is is very uh, limited in being able to communicate these various things. And he talks about eros, the romantic love that we feel for somebody else when we fall in love. And how in Eros love, our attention is almost entirely on the other person. 
we're fixated on the other person. Our heart skips a beat and, and, and our attention is there. But then he describes a different type of love. It's the brotherly type of love, filio, Philadelphia, of course, brotherly love, city of brotherly love, filio, which is a friendship relationship. And he describes on how friendship relationships are very different than Eros relationships. And friendships relationships are not just focused on the other. They're not entranced or enraptured by the other. He said, most people who experience difficulty in finding these types of brotherly friendships, the filial friendships, are trying to make those relationships more like the Eros, where we're, we're putting attention on the other person, when to have a true brotherly filial friendship, our focus needs to be set on something else external to the two people or multiple people. He says that you'll never have a true filial friendship when you're trying to focus entirely on the other person. He, he goes on to say, or at least we can apply, uh, apply this, that, that even Eros, romantic relationships are ultimately limited if we just fixate on the other person. our relationships are ultimately limited if we're just fixated on the other person. And you see, what Paul had with the Ephesians elder was a relationship, a friendship that was fixated on God and the work he had done for them. It was fixated on the the mission of the church, on proclaiming this gospel to many other people. It was fixated on the shared responsibility to shepherd the church of God. It was fixated on what God was calling them into. And in that deep, passionate, compassionate work alongside of one another, true, deep, intimate friendships emerged. Amazing friendships. I'm fine, Dave. Oh, okay. And all that friendship, great tears were shed. The gospel is good news for any of us who find ourselves lacking good friendships or stymied in the relationships and friendships that we have. The gospel gives us something else that we can cast our gaze on, that we can fixate on, and that's the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, who died for our sins and rose again, who reigns over all of creation, who has called himself our our bridegroom that we can love and, and cherish, and he calls us his bride. I mentioned earlier the weight of glory. And the word glory itself is closely tied to a weightiness in the Old Testament texts. And there's only one thing that can truly bear the weight of our love and our affection, and that is Jesus Christ, God himself. When we put our love too much on another person, we put a burden on them to fulfill our needs that they can never accomplish. It is actually possible to love somebody too much. 
because you expect more from that person than they can possibly give. But when we fix our gaze on Jesus, and when we put the weight of our affection on Him, it opens up a whole world of possibility that we can enter into these friendships with one another that are filled with tears, that are filled with affection. We can speak words of truth to one another. We can admonish one another. We can correct one another. We can look to the scriptures together to hear that correction when we need it. We can truly love one another. As we go our separate ways here, my prayer is that we would fix our gaze our eyes on the work that Jesus has done for our salvation and the work that he's called us into to love and serve one another into this gospel ministry, the gospel of grace that equips us for a far greater thing, hope that we will one day see one another in glory as well and in our case we will see one another oftentimes in this city and even on trips to various places and I hope that you'll come and visit us in Indianapolis and we'll see you frequently in San Diego. But even if that's not God's will, the weight of His glory, the weight of His love and affection for us has equipped us to love one another in ways that it's impossible to do apart from Christ. With that, I didn't... With that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have given us far more than we could ever ever hoped or imagined. And where we are anxious about where you are leading us next, whether it's what church to go to next, and still have questions around us, or about just transition in our family, making this big move, and the exams of the coming week, and, and various other things. Will you meet us and give us assurances that we need that you will accompany us through great struggle and difficulty and continue to lead us teach us and use us in your kingdom father as we approach your table and to celebrate the lord's supper together and eat this one final communion together as a church but look forward to celebrating many more communion services in various churches where you apply to us again the truth of your salvation that Jesus has won for us. And Father, will you send us out with this blessing as you did to the elders in Ephesus and Paul that we would be your kingdom ambassadors equipped with the gospel of grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's do community first. Is it dead? No. Uh, no, you're fine. Yeah, leave it here.
if you, it's maybe tough to see. If you're joining us online, our phone battery is running a little bit low, and if it goes off, we'll try to get it back on. We have limited power sources out here. When Jesus was with his disciples, he called them together to have one final meal with them. But it, of course, was not the final meal, and he ate with them after his resurrection. And so we look to this meal, not as a last meal, but as a promise. As a promise, a placeholder for the meal that is to come. In one sense, we look to the the great wedding feast that he's equipped and planned for us, that we will eat together with him in glory. And in another sense, we look to the next time that we'll celebrate communion with one another in different churches and even have fellowship meals with one another in our homes and various churches. We know Jesus doesn't lead us, but he continues to feed us. He reminds us that no longer was a sacrificial lamb sufficient or necessary, but his body would be broken on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. And in that, he experienced the separation from God, the separation that was due to us so that he could reconcile us in spirit and in body to the perfect and holy God. In the same way, he took wine and he distributed it among the the disciples, his apostles, and he said, this is my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. For in his blood was a perfect life-giving, cleansing sacrifice. The life of the body is in the blood. Jesus prayed with his disciples saying, these aren't the words of Jesus here, Father, thank you for this gift that you've given us. Will you bless it to us now that we would see your hand at work and be strengthened by it. In Jesus' name, amen. One also word of warning. He says, don't take the cup or the bread in an unworthy manner. He warns us, search your lives, confess your sins, know that God knows them already, confess your sins. You don't have to be perfect to come and receive this, but be honest with God. If you're here visiting and haven't received the Lord Jesus as your Savior and been baptized into his church, do that first. For to take the bread and the wine in an unworthy manner is to bring condemnation on ourselves. To take the bread and the wine is to testify, I believe, in the statements that we read earlier in the Apostles' Creed. And if you're not at a place of belief yet, know that this is a place for you to seek out that truth, to find the truth, to experience the community of Christian fellowship. Come back over and over again. You are always welcome. If you are a follower of Christ, this is declaring publicly in this place that you have believed and that you have given your full life to that. The body of Christ broken for you. Father, thank you for feeding us and equipping us. Before we sing our final song, will you gather together and will a few people just say a prayer for us as we uh, head out on, on Tuesday.
Lord, will you hear our prayers that you would send us out to be your ambassadors and serve faithfully in the churches you are calling us to. That we would see your gifts and you would apply those gifts beautifully and wonderfully in other places, building us up. Will you equip us for this work? Lord, will you hear our prayers? 